Good morning. Again, it's Palm Sunday. Um, this morning, we're going to be talking about the power of surprise and how we handle some of life's disappointments out of uh, Paul's advice in Romans 8:31 through 39. So thank you guys for joining us. Those watching online, it's grateful to have you as part of the congregation also. Um, Palm Sunday is the beginning of what is traditionally known as Passion Week or Holy Week. And it's this huge celebration where Jesus is finally noticed and his disciples and all the people around him declare him as king. They wave palm branches as a sign of nationalism, of a sign of their expectations, their hopes, that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem and finally overthrow Rome. He would set Caesar straight and declare to the whole world that he was king. And the whole world would bow down to him and to Israel. This is traditionally uh, a very celebratory time. As ironic as it is, this week begins in great celebration, culminates in Good Friday, which is an ironic title for the death of Jesus, Good Friday, and ultimately, and most magnificently, leads to the resurrection. But in the moment, in the moment, his disciples are experiencing a roller coaster of emotions. We go from this height of expectation that Jesus is finally living up to who he said he was, that he was going to be king and overthrow Rome and provide freedom, to his death. In the depth of despair, this fact that they did not expect Jesus to actually die but to become king. To become a king suggests that you sit on a throne and you live forever. When you die, your kingship is done. And so this is an emotional roller coaster for his first uh, followers. This, I believe, is a celebration in retrospect. So everything that we're going to celebrate over this week is a celebration in retrospect. But in the moment, it was incredibly painful and challenging. We have these all the time. I do not like roller coasters. All right, I got a couple of people that don't like roller coasters. I will get on a roller coaster when my reputation is on the line. Reputation is one of the biggest motivators to do something or to not do other things. And when my reputation is on the line, I'll buck up and I will get on a roller coaster. You know, I've been on the ones that flip upside down, they spin around, they go all over, and I just don't care for them. You know, with each kachunk, 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 like my blood pressure raises 10 notches and I'm just filled with angst. In the moment, it's not worth the uncertainty. Do I want to do it again? No, probably not. <laughs> but when I get off the roller coaster, I'm walking tall, right? My reputation is intact. I'm like, yes, I survived. I did not black out. I did not scream like a six-year-old girl. My reputation is intact. It is a celebration in retrospect. My relationship with the gym is very similar. <laughs> Going to the gym, I hate it. It's everything within me to get me there. But once I'm done, it's a celebration in retrospect. Surviving a weekend with the in-laws is a rich celebration <laughs> in retrospect. The birth of a child is a celebration in retrospect. In the moment, it's disturbing, painful, emotional, tiring, just uncertain. But at the end of it, there is a celebration that takes place. Palm Sunday and Easter, Jesus' resurrection, it's all a celebration in retrospect, because there's a tension between the feelings of now, what I'm experiencing in this moment, and the hopes of then. There's a huge tension. There's a conflict between my expectations and my realities. 
what I'm facing and what I'm hoping for. There's a quote that I carry around with me uh, for many years and never knew who it was attributed to. But Rob Rutledge, he's a scientist out of the University of London, he writes this. Happiness depends not on how well things are going, but whether things are going better or worse than expected. And this quote that I carry around goes something like this. The key to happiness is having low expectations. Has anybody ever heard that? Like, that has been my life's mantra for a number of years. Rob Rutledge, he's, he's put that into his studies. He basically says the key to happiness is having low expectations. Expectations determine everything. And for Jesus' disciples, this week's expectations are dashed. They had expected God to do one thing. God does something different. During the week of Palm Sunday and Jesus' resurrection, they have a roller coaster of emotions. This is the one, church, one week in church history where Christianity almost didn't get off the ground. It was almost a complete flop in this week. The church almost never existed. Luke 24, 19 through 21 tells a little bit of the story of what Jesus' disciples were facing This is the day after Jesus' death. So Jesus is crucified on Friday. And on Saturday, two of his disciples are walking to a friend's house. They're going to have dinner together. They're going to talk about what has just happened, try to figure out how life moves forward. And they're walking along this road, and a stranger comes along and says, Guys, why are you so sad? What's going on? And the disciples respond and say, Haven't you heard? Our best friend was just killed. He was crucified, most gruesome way. And the guy's like, no, who, who are you talking about? And this is what it reads in Luke 24. It says, we're talking about Jesus in Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to deliver and redeem Israel. We had hoped. That implies that all their hope was gone in that moment. Their expectations and their realities were out of sync. Something completely different happened that they did not anticipate. N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, he's he's a prolific author and scholar, um, has incredible influence. He writes this about this scenario. He says, none of the disciples dreamed of saying, oh, that's all right, in a few days he'll be back. Nor did anyone say, well, at least now he's in heaven with God. They were not looking for that sort of kingdom. After all, Jesus himself had taught them to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What they were looking for was a kingdom that would be set up on earth. And what happens to Jesus completely overturns that and disrupts their expectations. Even the expectations that they had had that God would do something. They'd understood God in one means and all of a sudden God changes. He pivots and does something different. And they're left completely disillusioned. Holy week is a week of failed expectations, confusion, resentment, frustration, disappointment, and changed plans. Have you ever had a week like that? Have you ever had a week like that? How do we navigate life when it's full of surprises? When we feel like God is leading us one way and all of a sudden plans change? What do we do when our plans don't turn out, when we're disrupted in life? I believe disruptions are disorienting, but they're incredible opportunities for critical reflection, and they provide potential for new ways of thinking and acting. As disruptions 
hit us and they disorient us and they mess us up, there is incredible opportunity and the possibility for new life because they stop us just enough to cause us to take account of everything around us and ask some fundamental questions. And that's what I believe Paul is getting to in the book of Romans. We've been talking for a number of weeks about what God has done and this good news, this gospel that Paul talks about. But for a lot of his audience, Romans 1 through 8 kind of leaves them going, okay, what happened? We had this picture that we would be set up with Jesus, with him as king, us ruling right below him, and all the other nations being subservient to him, bowing down to us, because we're his followers. We're first in line for leadership, and their life is completely changed. If everything Paul is claiming in Romans 1 through 8, if it holds truth, if it holds value, Israel's left looking and saying, then why does Rome still have power over us? If everything that Jesus has done, if Paul is explaining everything that Jesus has done in Romans 1 through 8, then why does Israel still suffer? Why does it seem like evil is winning out? Why does it seem like we got the short end of the stick? And I know life, for me, can feel like that many times. God's not owning up to his end of the bargain. And Paul, in Romans 8, 31 through 39, says, okay, here's what we need to know. Here's what we need to know, and here's the solution to these unanswered plans, these failed expectations. So let's read Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his son but gave him up for all of us, will he not also with him give us everything else? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Jesus Christ who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of God? Will hardships or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted to be sheep to be slaughtered. No, verse 37, Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul gets to this amazing account of saying, guys, we know life didn't turn out the way you planned. It seems like God has shifted something on us. And now we're left with this new situation. And there's three things in this passage that I believe, first and foremost, hold power over us in these moments. When life doesn't go the way we plan, because we have an image of where we want to go and how we want to live, but when life doesn't go the way we plan, I believe Paul identifies and acknowledges three things that weigh us down, that hold us back, that dampen our resilience and take us captive. He does them through three rhetorical questions. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against God's elect? The first is we feel charged. We feel as if somebody is bringing an indictment against us. And Rome had brought an indictment against Israel and said, you are serving the wrong king. You need to serve Caesar. 
Your allegiances are wrong. And essentially what Rome is saying, what I believe the voice that we carry around when we feel charged is, you were wrong, you are wrong, and you will be wrong again. It's a powerful voice to carry when plans don't turn out. You were wrong, you are wrong, and you will be wrong again. The second rhetorical question he says is, who is to condemn? Not only do we feel charged, but we carry around this feeling of condemnation. We feel condemned. Rome looked at Israel and said, okay, you're wrong in who you serve. Your plans were wrong. And what that means is you are hopeless. You are condemned to death. There is no way forward for you. And when our plans get shifted and our world kind of falls apart, we carry around this feeling of we were wrong, but also that we were condemned, that we are hopeless, that we have no way forward, and we cannot overcome this. And then third and finally, verse 35, it says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And to continue our theme of seas, charge condemned, who will constrain us? Rome is saying, because you are wrong and you're as good as dead, you are cut off. You are cut off. And this voice that we carry around of being constrained, thinking to ourselves, life didn't pan out the way it planned. And the world around me and God around me is laughing at me. My reputation has been marred. Because of that, God no longer loves me. He no longer accepts me. And the people around me no longer accept me because they see me as a failure. In essence, you feel unloved. These three voices tend to beat us down. They hold us captive. They keep us from moving forward and actually pulling from and entering into what God wants to do. These are the voices of Rome that oppress us. It's the voice of sin. It's the voice of death. It's the voice of failure. And they bind us and they keep us back. Paul in Romans 8, 28, a few verses earlier from the text that we read, gives a little picture of how to move forward. Unfortunately, it's been claimed as like one of those pitchy, pithy, catchy statements that are often said in times of frustration when it looks like evil is winning out. And so most of the time, I write it off, but there's power to it. It says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. And this has been used as like, oh, life is going hard, but remember, everything's going to turn out fine. The power, though, when you detach from the emotional element of that verse is incredible. And the real victory of that statement comes in the second half that I didn't read. A lot of people stop in that first half. Okay, everything's going to turn out fine. Don't worry. Just calm down. Everything's going to turn out fine. But the second phrase is where there's power. He says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. According to his purpose. I believe, you know, purpose sounds very serious. I believe what Paul is saying, when you are called according to God's story, Paul is reorienting his audience to a new story. He's saying the way you had envisioned your story, your life, has changed, and there's a new story that is being written. The plot line has just deviated. It's changed. It's become much thicker. It's much deeper. And we need to reorient ourselves to a new story that is happening. Leslie Newbegin, he's a missionary from India, spent most of his life in India, and he's a theologian. He writes this. The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life is a part? The way we understand our lives is through the construct of the greater story. 
when we understand what part of the story our life is, then something new takes place in us. And so we have to ask ourselves, what story do I find myself a part of? What story do I find myself a part of? For Jesus' followers during Holy Week, this disappointment resulted when God did not meet the expectations of their story. They had a very simple story that they were holding on to, and they held on to it with all that they were, all of their fiber, their being. And God comes in and does something different. Their story, Israel's story, ended with Jesus proving Rome was wrong and ushering in freedom for Israel. It was a nationalistic story. It provided religious freedom. It put them in a place of power and authority. And I believe their greatest frustration came as a result of holding too firmly to their story. They held too firmly to it. It was their story. Theirs to write, theirs to implement, and theirs to experience. They had a vision for what their life could look like, and they were unable to deviate from that. They couldn't adjust to the bigger picture of what God was doing. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, how firmly are we holding to our own story? How firmly are you holding on to your own story? The more firmly we hold to our own story, the stronger the voices of charge, condemn, and constrain become. It all rests on us. And so when things move, shift, fall apart, these voices beat us down, weigh us down, and hold us captive. And so Paul gives us an answer. He says, surprise and disappointment often charge, condemn, and constrain us. But Paul gives us a way to move forward when we acknowledge, adjust, and anticipate. We acknowledge, adjust, and anticipate. Romans 8.31, what are we to say about these things? Paul looks at his audience and says, okay, the storyline has completely changed. What do we have to say about it? In essence, he is trying to get a reality check out of his audience. He's saying we need to acknowledge what has happened and where we now sit in the story. We have to realize that something is incredibly different. The disciples in this week, when Jesus is crucified, find themselves denying and divesting from their teacher. They entered fully into the grieving process. Not only for loss of a friend, but a loss of their identity, their hope, and their freedom. When life changes on us, when things don't go the way we plan, we have to acknowledge that reality and enter into the grieving process. It's not one thing to just buck up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on as if nothing happened. We're actually called to engage, to realize the difference because when we engage it, when we go through that grieving process of, man, this is what I was hoping for with my life and it's completely changed. When we grieve the loss of that hope, that expectation, it actually sets us up marvelously to see a bigger part of God's story, to engage and benefit from the richness of what God is doing going forward. For Peter, Paul, James, John, and all the people that followed him, they'd found their lives had changed. The plot line had deepened, but also the solution was much deeper and grander than they originally understood. But they had to pause. They had to digest it in community and face reality. And only when they did that could they be ready to adjust. Could they be ready to adjust? I was in a sporting goods store with my son, Eli, who's three years old, and we found ourselves over to the baseball section. 
And I loved baseball growing up, uh, played a lot of backyard games, played in a couple leagues, and uh, we broke a lot of windows in homes and lost a lot of baseballs in backyard baseball. Uh, but I loved it so much. Played it for hours on end, catch, hitting the ball, all kinds of things, and absolutely loved them. We found our way to the baseball section uh, with my three-year-old, and what does he gravitate toward? He finds the bats. And he picks up this bat that is as tall as him, and all of a sudden he finds himself in like a, a home run derby situation where like every swing is like swinging for the fences. And all of a sudden there's like a six-foot radius of danger and destruction around him. Things are coming off the shelves. I'm getting the evil eye from the people around me. They're trying to get my kid under control. They're ducking and dodging. Because a three-year-old with a bat is a bad idea. <laughs> so I negotiate. I get him to put it down. And we moved to the gloves. And so we bought this glove for him. He was very excited about the glove. He was very giddy, especially once he realized he could put his hand inside the glove. It's a simple thing. Put his hand inside the glove. And like when he moved his hand, the glove moved. And he was like, do you see this? When I move, it moves. I was like, yes, that is the goal. And soon, I'm going to throw the ball into the glove, and you're going to close your hand and catch the glove. And he got all excited. And the ball's on the ground. He's picking it up with the glove. Like he's just realizing how this thing works. So we get home. He's giddy with excitement. He puts on this glove. And I'm like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I've got this vision of baseball in my mind, right? Like years of playing it and just enjoying it. I'm like, man, we're going to have so much bonding. It's going to be great. We're going to be throwing the ball in the backyard. And we get this ball. And I'm like, okay, I realize I've got to start small. So I'm like, okay, put it out like a basket. Just hold it like a basket. I'm going to toss it in. And when I toss it in, you'll catch it. And so I toss it, you know, and every now and then it's landing in the glove. Every now and then it's bouncing off the back, bouncing off him. Every time it falls outside the glove, he just bursts into giggles. Like, he's just like, it's the best thing ever. I'm like, okay, you're missing the point. Let's get back on it. <laughs> Throw the ball. And so what we want to do is we want you to catch the ball. So when the ball hits the glove, use your other hand and kind of cradle it in. Like, lock it into place. Simple concept. So he puts the hand up there. I toss it. And it bounces in and out a couple times. And... What I realized in the process is a three-year-old has a, the reflex time of about three minutes. <laughs> and so the ball hits the glove, rolls out, Eli laughs, then closes the glove. <laughs> and he's like, did I get it? And I'm like, it's been on the ground for a couple of minutes. Anyway, we move on. <laughs> I'm trying to get him to realize this, and so I'm throwing the ball. And what I realized after a few minutes is that the glove never moves. Like, it is, like, anchored in place. No matter where I throw the ball, the glove is never moving. And I get him, I'm like, okay, Eli, watch the ball. And where the ball goes, the glove goes. It's, I'm not asking him to, like, dive out and catch it. Like, micro-movements, let's start small. And so I'm throwing it, and I realize after, like, three or four minutes, he is having the time of his life, but I'm getting more frustrated. I'm like, just move the glove. Just like it could be off right here. Nothing ever happens. He never moves the glove. And what I believe anyway that Paul is saying is that Israel is holding so tightly onto their story. They never move their glove. God's trying to get them to adjust, to see a bigger picture of what is happening, to get them to adjust, to move to where he is moving. And Israel so firmly holding onto their story that they never move the glove. Because they're unwilling to move the glove, they're missing out on this bigger picture that God has in mind. They had anticipated God doing something great, 
but they wanted God to continually adjust to their story. They wanted God to continually throw the ball into their glove and to fit within their parameters every time. This is what Paul is addressing. God is saying to them and saying to us this morning, there's something bigger I want to do. But in order to be part of that story, we need to learn to adjust. Palm Sunday, the book of Romans, the four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all a celebration in retrospect. Because everything that took place in those letters, the first century believers did not expect. With Jesus' death, their hopes were dashed. But with his resurrection, their hopes were redefined. Their hopes were redefined. When everything has changed and you feel trapped in the cycle of charge, condemn, and constrain, Paul gives us a response based on who Jesus is that will help us adjust to what God is doing. The story begins with God's gracious gift and promise that he would give us everything we need. Verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his son but gave him up for all of us, will he not also give us everything else? And what I believe is Paul is saying he's going to give you everything you need to participate in God's story. He's going to give you everything you need to participate in God's story when we adjust to him. He keeps pointing us back to God. Those three rhetorical questions. Who can bring a charge against us? When Rome brings those indictments that you were wrong, you are wrong, you'll be wrong again. Paul reminds us that these threats, these indictments, these charges are empty because God himself is the true ruler and has already ruled in your favor. It's already decided. He's ruled in your favor. God has declared you forgiven, free, and in the right. It says, who will condemn us when Rome says your life is hopeless, when nothing but death awaits you? Paul reminds us that Jesus has a place of authority and has actually declared the final verdict. The power in Jesus' resurrection is that if death is Rome's final threat, and Jesus himself underwent death and was not overcome by death itself but was raised to new life, what that means for us is as we participate in what Jesus is doing, those words of death and even death itself no longer have hold over us. It means our situation is not helpless. It is not hopeless. But we can participate and experience new life that voice of con- condemn and condemnation no longer has power. And then finally, who will constrain us? Who will separate us from the love of God? When Rome, these voices of affliction, these voices of condemnation, these voices of constraint come against us and say, you are unloved and you are cut off, you are unworthy, Paul reminds us that God himself intercedes on your behalf. He is stepping in and pulling for you. He wants the best for you. Not only that, But if death itself could not overcome his love for you, if he was willing to express his love for you so much in death, there is no other obstacle that can separate him. No other obstacle can separate you from the love of God, and that's exemplified in the fact that Jesus was willing to undergo one of the most gruesome deaths at his time. Nothing can separate you. And so based on this purpose, God's character, we can then anticipate Romans 8, 37, Paul says, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Conquerors over what? 
The love of Jesus is exemplified in his death, resurrection, and ultimately his ascension. And it enables us to overcome the surprises of life, the disappointments, the challenges, the persecutions, the suffering that we face. It grants us the power to overcome the voices of charge, condemn, and constrain. But we must keep our eye on him. We must be able to look and say, okay, what story is my life a part of? How do I need to adjust to what God is doing now? Based on the new information that I have, based on facing the reality and the circumstances, God, what are you doing? And Paul reminds us, as we adjust, as we look to God, then we can anticipate a victory. We can anticipate that we will participate in God's story and ultimately find true life. This is why his disciples were told to pray, as we've prayed a couple times over this series, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I believe one way of understanding that is to say your story, God, may God's story play out on earth in my life, in my family, in my relationships, in my community, in this world. May his story be established. Paul's ability to find himself in this story gave him strength to overcome more than he could have ever imagined he would face. When his world came crashing down, when he was confronted with new information, when he had a conflict of identity, when he lost his career, his, this story, the story of God, allowed him to navigate uncertainty and discover true meaning in life. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, what story am I a part of? Am I writing my own story? Is it mine to write, mine to implement, mine to experience? Or am I willing to shift to a larger, more powerful story that God wishes to write? God's in the process of writing a story, and we're called to be a part of it. If you find yourself this morning in the midst of disappointment, you feel like your world's kind of falling apart around you, I want to remind you that the voices that seek to charge, condemn, and constrain you, to hold you back, to beat you down, cannot separate you from the love of God. They cannot separate you. As you acknowledge, adjust, and anticipate, these disruptions become celebrations in retrospect. They become celebrations in retrospect, and they place you firmly in the middle of God's story, which is one of ultimate victory. This morning, if you're new to church and maybe you've never read this story, this is a great week to jump in as we prepare for Easter, Jesus' resurrection. Read the Gospel of Mark. Begin by reading the Gospel of Mark and saying, okay, what story is presented here? How does this impact my story? If Maybe you've been in church a long time and these stories of Jesus are kind of mundane, like I know how it ends, I know how it goes. I would encourage you this week to pick one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. John is an amazing Gospel to be reminded of Jesus and who he is and what he is doing in this world. Pick it up this week as part of your reflection and preparation for Easter. Become again familiar with the story of Jesus and what that story means for your story. In conclusion, I'd like to pray over you guys this morning. So if you will, bow your heads with me. Jesus, we turn to you in our times of surprise and disillusionment. We rely on you to carry our story forward in your story, for your purposes, and for your glory. Lord, I pray when life does not turn out the way we had hoped, 
when our expectations fail, that you would grant us the power and the trust to overcome these voices of charge, condemn, and constrain. They hold no power over us through what you have accomplished. Finally, I pray these words of of Jude. We turn to you primarily because you are the one, as Jude said, who is able to keep us from stumbling. You are able to make us stand without fault in the presence of your glory and with great joy. We pray this to the only God, our Savior, to whom be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, now and forever. Amen.